Guys, I have a podcast confession. I'm so curious about where this is going. Okay. So just a a peek behind the curtain. Is that what they say? A glimpse behind the scenes. <laughs> For our listener base. Behind is the that... image of perfection that we yes. portray. The magic of my editing. The magic of oh, Melissa's editing. She does make us sound so good. Like a dream. No, but, you know, we got to do some work before we bop on to do some of our recording. Like, AKA, listen to some episodes before we jump back in together as a team to do some takeaways, to do some intros, right? Yes. I didn't do my homework and I didn't listen to any of the episodes until 630 this morning. <gasps> to which I furiously started doing my takeaways. Are um, you serious? I'm serious. I realized at, don't worry, I realized at 6 p.m. last night that I had not listened, re-listened to one of the interviews. Okay. Oh. I don't feel so, I mean, I take notes, but two of them I was absent for. And so it just, you know, the the 20 pies life is crazy and it literally hit me i was like josh i have to go lock myself in the room take care of the children (laughs) anyway i it hit me as i was about to eat my oatmeal nice i listened to the last interview last night on one and a half speed to make sure i could listen to it and still have date night oh my gosh yeah. This is so hilarious. This is just a peek behind the curtain of like, I almost dropped the ball and I was almost the weakest link and I almost didn't have anything to bring to this day. But never fear. I'm here. <laughs> I did Same my work. Um, I prepped two weeks ago, but no one is shocked by that. <laughs> no one. No. no one is shocked. Hey guys, this is Esther, and welcome to the People Who See podcast. We ask questions often avoided and listen to stories often unheard. We believe that great stories and great questions allow us to see our faith differently. Thanks for joining the conversation. Let's dive in. Well, hello, friends. Welcome back to the People Who See podcast. I'm Esther, and I'm here with the usual brain trust of Melissa. Hello, hello. (laughs) I don't know. That's just me. Wait, Esther, did you say brain trust? Yeah. What does that mean? Okay, we'll unpack it later. (laughs) (laughs) It means you guys are geniuses. (laughs) Well, the genius didn't pick up on brain trust. (laughs) just another peek behind that curtain everybody (laughs) there is no curtain there is just the raw unedited (laughs) versions of ourselves that we bring to this podcast um but yeah that's melissa and that's beth um brain trust over here we're we're here (laughs) coming at you um but i am literally dying with excitement today because I finally get to introduce all of you, our many, many listeners, to one of my biggest brain crushes in the whole wide world, Danielle Schroyer. Um, 
I first found her work when I was starting my doctoral program and her book, Original Blessing. Wow. It started me down this long, long journey of rethinking my theology, reimagining the way I see God, the way I see myself. So like it has had, she's had such an impact on me and it was such an honor for me to get to talk to her. I was like freaking out the whole time and trying not to lose my words and trying not just to be like completely fangirling the whole time. So I can't wait for you guys to hear our conversation. Um, But to tell you a little bit about Danielle, she is a spiritual director, yay, an author, speaker, and former pastor. She's the author of three books, most recently, Original Blessing, Putting Sin in Its Rightful Place, which is what we are chatting about today. Um, She also runs the blog Soul Ninja, where she reflects on the teachings of Buddhism as she practices them. Danielle is a graduate of Baylor University and Princeton Seminary. She's a Taekwondo black belt, just casually, um, loves books, tea, and most nerdy things. She and her husband, Dan, which um, they're Dan and Danielle, which I think is absolutely precious. They live in Dallas and have two young adults. You can find her at DanielleShroyer.com and at Danielle Schroyer on Twitter and Instagram. And we'll link to both of those in the show notes as well. So without further ado, here's our conversation with Danielle Schroyer. But yeah, we're just going to jump in. And I love, anyone who knows me knows I love a good open-ended question. So I always start off interviews with the wonderful open-ended question of, tell us your story. You can take that any way that you choose. Yeah, it's like spiritual direction. Um, That is such an open-ended question. So I was raised in West Texas, and my mom is Lebanese. My dad is a wasp from West, West Texas. And so I grew up with a pretty wide open view of God, but I, I don't think I became conscious of it until much later. But, you know, when your grandparents are from a different culture and a different religion, even, um, you just end up realizing that God is bigger. And I think that's really served me well. So I tend to start my story by saying that, that I think the combination of that and wide open skies in West Texas gave me a sense mm-hmm. of openness that has, mm-hmm. um, I think that the spirit has used to help me see things a certain way. Um, I have always felt really close to God. Um, Mm. and I've always had a lot of curiosity about God. And so that led me to get a degree in religion and then go to seminary. And I thought I would be a professor for my whole life. And what happened instead is that I really fell in love with, um, the idea of, what the church could look like if we asked big, hard questions. And so I was part of kind of a a movement that thought about rethinking what church could be and what it could look like and how we could do it. And that was really important to me for, I don't know, almost 20 years of my early ministry journey. I pastored a church called Journey um, that did that for um, almost eight years, nine years, Um, and then stepped down from that to see what God had next. And so now I serve as a spiritual director. That is a deepening of that calling. um, And that's my primary focus and heart. Um, I've continued to write, obviously, and I speak. And um, for me, that's just an important way to 
I don't know, help people, help invite people into a bigger story. That's really important to me. And I like to companion people um, in whatever ways that I can, in ways that help them understand God. Uh, yeah, with a little bit more permission, perhaps. So, yeah, that's part of my story, at least. <laughs> <laughs> um, everything that you have said thus far um, is resonating so much with me. I'm everything you say. I'm like, no wonder I'm so obsessed with her. <laughs> <laughs> um, so my business partner and I, she is a spiritual director. I am in, I'm through my first year of training to be a spiritual director and everything that we do is sort of centered around like these tools and postures and like attitudes of spiritual direction. Mm-hmm. And I feel like there's just this certain language that people in those circles speak and I hear you speaking the same language and I'm just like yes yes this is this is like my native tongue (laughs) yes yes (laughs) yeah I think these are the qualities that the world needs right now too like um I there's there's just been an absolute explosion of people that are wanting to become spiritual directors and I think certainly there's going to be some negatives with that that we'll have to tend with but um, for me, looking at the positive side of that is that I think people are hungering for these kinds of spacious spaces and questions. Mm-hmm. And I think the more of us that have the training and have put in the time and experience to try to hold that space and cultivate it, I just think the world needs it. So, I, um, I love what you said about what could the church look like if we ask these big hard questions and I feel like that's sort of what drew me to your book originally was like it felt like this willingness to ask questions of something that I think we've assumed is like a true theological belief that we've like carried with us through these like hundreds if not thousands of years of Christian history and especially of Genesis like I really loved the chapter where you were like we all just need to take a deep breath about Genesis it's not Um, going to fix everything or answer everything (laughs) um yeah so I I loved that willingness to sort of re-examine this idea that we've all inherited maybe explicitly or just absorbed in our sort of Christian upbringings. Um, But yeah, could you just tell us a little bit about your book, Original Blessing, and about um, how the book came to be, how you started to ask those questions and sort of go on this journey yourself? Yeah. Um, Well, I tend to share that I have always been a little bit side-eye about the idea of original sin. Like I never really thought that made much sense. And I, I tell the story a lot, but I remember when I was really young, like, I don't know, maybe first grade or something. And we were in, I, we sometimes attended a Baptist church and we were there in Sunday school and they were telling us the story. And it was like that Eve was bad because she wanted to be like God. And I was like, aren't we here at church with our dresses on, like I'm in Sunday school because I want to be like God. Like what, why is that bad? Why is she bad for wanting that? And 
It did not go over well, but I just thought, I just, I'm not totally buying into this, but you know, um, nobody gave me a framework that was an option outside of it. And so it was always just, I was like hanging on the margins thinking, I don't think that's right, but I didn't have any sense of how to replace it with anything else. And so really the impetus for writing the book came, um, I wrote it after I stepped down from being a pastor and after those years of walking with people, which we didn't, we didn't all the time in the way we do today, call it deconstruction, but we did use that term and that's certainly what was happening. Um, I just noticed that this whole concept of being fallen and of being, you know, sort of at the core broken was incredibly harmful to people. And not only that, but even maybe worse it was a real hindrance for them to grow at all spiritually. Like it was just putting this major cap on their capacity for growth and discipleship. And so it doesn't make practical sense and it certainly didn't make psychological or spiritual sense. And so um, I wrote the book as a way to offer what I was looking for that I didn't really have, which was like a framework of, Hey, I know you were told that it was this way, but here's another option. You know, you could maybe choose to see it these other ways. And I felt so encouraged in the years that I was like, of course, I've been thinking about this for a bit, apparently since I was in like first grade, I've been thinking about this question. So I already had a lot of, you know, I had logged a lot of time in this realm, but you know, when I got serious about the research and was looking through, of course I realized like, oh, this is, I'm not just coming up with this on the fly, Daniel Schroyer with a good idea. Like, no. All my Jewish friends, all the rabbis are like, yeah, we don't, we don't know why y'all say that. And then I, I called my Muslim friend, one of my Muslim friends, and I said, I was like, hey, what's your thing on Genesis 3? Like, tell me what you think. And he was like, yeah, we don't know why you Christians make that into a thing. Like, here's what we, you know, and I was like, okay, that's, thanks. That's really helpful. And then, you know, you read the early church fathers and I took um, a guy to lunch that teaches at a seminary across the, the Metroplex. And I was like, hey, you're an expert in this stuff. Like, is it true that they didn't really have this concept? And he's like, yeah, no, that's true. <laughs> it didn't come around until the fifth century. And so anyway, all of that gave me the sense of permission of, we have an older tradition that dates before original sin. And similarly to the way that I think people think that all this end times stuff is like, you know, well, true for one thing, but also that it's like been doctrine. It's like, that was from 1950 and it's from my town. It's like from Dallas right there. Don't give it, you know, I don't think that thing's going to last. So I think it just that sense of like permission um, to mm -hmm. say that there's some traditions we can go back to that hold space that are, that's faithful. Um, anyway, that's a not long rambling answer to say, that's why I wanted to write this book to give um, everybody a sense of, here's a way to walk through a framework of what it could look like if you just decided that you also don't buy into original sin. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I, um, <laughs> I feel like I had a very similar experience when I started researching for my own. Obviously it's, it's a smaller world. I'm not writing a book about it. But when I started researching it, I felt like I had sort of lived into like certain truths about theology and about God and kind of spent a few years in this weird tension of like hoping these things could be true and like 
living as if they were and interacting with God as if they were, but like, like holding it back from maybe like the church or my parents or like whoever it was in my circle that like held to a more traditional theological belief. And so when I started researching, I felt like I was on this like secret journey of saying like, am I still orthodox? (laughs) Is this still okay? Or is somebody going to throw the heresy card at me? And like, uh, where I have come to is people may in fact still throw the heresy card at me, but I have done my work enough to know that I still think I'm well in the in the constraints of orthodoxy um yeah we have meister eckhart with us i mean that's encouraging (laughs) you know what i mean we have a lot of really solid people who are in our corner about these things Mm -hmm. and so um and frankly all of the spiritual leaders that i know of today that i really respect none of them think original sin is a thing and that's across Mm -hmm. all the religions um they all think that basic human goodness is something that everyone is born with. And we're in very good company with the Dalai Lama and, uh, you know, yeah, lots of people. So yeah. Thomas Keating, Thomas Keating, like Thomas Merton, all, the, Merton. all of the monks. I mean, my goodness. Yes. They, <laughs> they understand this. Um, okay. But I feel like we should, hold on for one moment and sort of define our terms for um, the non well they can still be nerds but for the people who haven't read all about this okay so could you define really quickly for us sort of the more traditional understanding of original sin Mm -hmm. as it pertains to theology and then what you sort of put forth in your book original blessing yeah, sure. So I think part of the the confusion that people have is that they think they know what original sin is as like an idea that people are not perfect. Mm. No, that's not what original <laughs> sin is. Nobody disagrees with that. Like, I don't care if people are atheists, agnostic, mm-hmm. what pick a religion. Everybody knows that there's sin. Like, they might name it different things, but there's nobody on the planet that's like, no, everything's going perfect. Nobody thinks that. Um, So original sin, instead, is the doctrinal declaration that there is something inherently wrong with us. And the thing that's inherently wrong is that we have an inclination that leans towards evil. Um. In many of the doctrines, it says inclined to evil continually. Mm. So it's not like every once in a while you have a bad thought. It's like if you have two options, you're always going to choose the evil one. You're always inclined to the evil option. That's what original sin is saying. And then, of course, it sets up the scaffolding to where that's what Jesus has to come and fix because we can't fix ourselves because we're inclined to evil continually. And so... We are going to now demand all these things of Jesus that may or may not be what Jesus was here to do so that he can fix this problem that comes from this doctrine that came 400 plus years after Jesus did all the things to fix this inclination that is ours at birth. We could get 
all into things about how, how this comes through. And, you know, Tertullian said it came through the sperm. Like, I mean, so this is why Mary had to be a virgin. Like, oh, we could just have all kinds of fun. But that's just basically it, is that it's not that we sin. It's that we're inclined to evil continually and that there's that there's nothing we can do to fix that. Once you get saved, you aren't therefore just inclined to good. You continue to be inclined to evil and there's no fix. You can just hope for grace. Original blessing says that we are born in the image of God and we are born with a sense of inherent goodness and that that has the capacity to be not just where we come from, but where we're going. Um, The way that I say it in the book is we are in a relationship with God and God started it and God is sticking with it, which is to say that our goodness is not at first coming from us as the source. It's coming from the fact that God has chosen to be in relationship with us and has named us as such. So it's our origin. But I also say that it's our goal because as we grow, the goal is for us to learn how to live into the goodness that we're born with. And that's what gets dicey and therefore complicated, right? So while original sin will say maybe that we accidentally happen into goodness, original blessing would say, well, no, we have an inclination to good and we have an inclination to evil. And the good has a little bit of a leverage above that because it's our, it's our origin, right? It's our source. But we have to practice wisdom, which is about figuring out which inclination to listen to. And that gets messy over time, and so sin happens. But it's, it's at the end of the day, we can always come back to our goodness. I have so many questions that I'm like, <laughs> like where should we go next? There's yep. so many beautiful places to go. Um, I think I love your distinction between sort of original sin or like a sin nature mm-hmm. and like the ability to sin. Because I think the phrase that – comes up in my mind a lot. I I grew up in the Midwest. There's a lot of like Christian reformed influence here. And so total depravity is the phrase that I hear over and over again. Um, Which again, like you said at one point that original sin sort of puts this cap on our, on our ability to like live into who we're called to be, who we are becoming. And that total depravity phrase, like, talk about just, like, shame over shame over shame, that there is absolutely nothing good in you, and you have to just, like, scrub everything of yourself out of yourself in order to give yourself to Jesus. Yeah. And it's, it's like you said, it's one of those theological beliefs that I feel like once you start to, like, parse it out and sort of like follow it to its logical conclusion you're like what right why would why would we want this yeah (laughs) how is that gonna make me a whole person yes yeah that's gonna make me cease to exist is that what god is up to in the world that god created the world so that we can not exist and it'll just be god again Mm -hmm. it makes no sense Mm -hmm. yeah yeah like god hates you so much that he loves you. So right. like please make sure to get rid of all of the all of yourself so that he will love you again. 
Right. He hates you so much. Please make sure to do that, but also understand that there's nothing you can do because it's that bad and you have to have <laughs> God do it for you. But it's your it's your responsibility and your fault, but also you can't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. I call that the hamster wheel, right? Like mm-hmm. it's this, again, this is just, if you were going to design a way for people to become spiritually um, stuck for their whole lives, this would be the way to do it. Right? my gosh. And that's so, I love that you just said that because literally everything that like people who see does and speaks to and like our audience as we describe it is like these people who are longing for more, who feel like they are stuck in a very specific version of Christianity that like hands you a formula and hands you a set of beliefs to believe in. And you just kind of look around at it and say, like, is this it? Like, I feel like there has to be more. And so to hear you say that, like, oh, yes, this belief is actually something that is keeping us stuck. It's something that is keeping us stuck in this constant cycle of, like, self-emptying, self-hatred that never leads to the kind of abundant life that Jesus calls us to, right? Right. Um, okay, so I'm trying to move, like, sequentially because I'm getting really excited. But so we have this idea of original sin. No one is denying the reality of sin. What you are saying is we do not necessarily have this sin nature that is inclining us to evil at all times. Right. So to the person who says, well, we fell, we are fallen. That is clearly what has happened in Genesis 3. We were banished from the garden, the curses, the the serpent, all of those things. Mm -hmm. That's what it says. That's what happened. What would sort of be your... (laughs) I I would say, show me. (laughs) Show me where that is. Where does the word fall happen? Where? Show me the verse that says that there was something about us before the encounter in Genesis 3 that stopped being true about us after it. That verse doesn't exist. It's not in there. Literally, I can't tell you how many hours I've spent looking, looking at it up in the Hebrew. Like, good luck finding it. It's not in there. Um, So what we can say is, um, I talk in the book about how we can see uh, Genesis 3 as a story of coming of age. When you get older, you question your parents and you rebel. It is not because you are a terrible, terrible person. It is because you were a person who is preparing to leave your parents' house. Mm. It is, it's not great, but it's also not evil. It just is how humans grow up. I don't know. God set it up that way clearly because it's happened from the very beginning. (laughs) Um, So this story of questioning your loving parent is just a thing that every kid does. I mean, I have two college age kids now and I can tell you for sure they questioned us and it's out of love that we realized that this was part of the growing up process. Mm -hmm. And so instead for us to see this as a coming of age story, that what is shed is our sense of naivete and innocence, that we have to enter into a world that's complicated. We have to enter into a world in ourselves that is complicated because we realize that we have good and evil in us at the same time. Um, 
and it's okay. Like this is all part of it. And in fact, maybe it's somehow designed this way because there's something about walking in the practice of feeling between those inclinations of good and evil, if we want to use those words, that actually produces wisdom. That is how wisdom happens for us. If you read any of the wisdom literature in the Hebrew scriptures, Mm. this is a very clear thing of like, it's about weighing, it's about Mm. determining, it's about discerning, right? And it's, that's a practice that takes time. You don't get it right the first time every time. Mm -hmm. Um, And so kind of going back to what we were saying before, like, when you real when you when you're coming from this this type of Christianity that says that if you did something good it was because of God and you can't take any credit for it you've got to give God all the glory you never give yourself a sense of trust and that inner trust is the thing that cultivates wisdom because you think no i know what i'm doing i know that i was trying to do make this choice out of fear or out of pride and i know now actually that when i do this it feels different you have to have a sense of inner trust and also practice for you to be able to cultivate that. And if you're pawning all the good and bad off on God the whole time, you can't develop that. So that's what I mean about the spiritual immaturity that it keeps you in. It keeps you stuck. So Genesis 3, all to say, is a coming-of-age story. And um, we weren't banished from the garden. We were sent out. And that is a very different thing. And benediction is also ascending out. And that feels really important, you know? But I'm just playing devil's advocate here. Yeah, yeah, do it. It's good. (laughs) For my audience. Um, Could you talk a little bit about sort of the implications of how we view scripture from that, that, what you have just said, though? Because I, one of my favorite distinctions you say, which I'm sure you're probably not the first person to say it, but you say that we need to read the Bible literarily, literarily yeah. instead of literally. Yes. Which when I first read, I had to go back and read it again because I was like, what? That doesn't make sense. <laughs> but like we aren't used to sort of viewing at least I and probably our audience coming out of conservative Christian circles. We're not used to viewing the Genesis narratives and scripture as a whole as scriptures that teach us something or I mean stories that teach us something about ourselves and about God and about who we are and why we are that way so I guess my question is how can we sort of expand our vision of scripture in that way yeah Um, Well, it helps to know that that's a pretty new way of reading scripture, right? It's, again, that there's an older tradition Mm -hmm. and that um, it's just not true that anyone in Jesus's time or just really long after, like up to, I don't think medieval people read it this way either, that there was a sense of, first of all, a personal individual, because that is a Western concept that came way later. So this idea of like, I'm this one person who's having to delineate what's happening between me and God individually and you know, all that, that's a new concept. And also um, this idea that it has to mean a thing and that the thing is consistent and that it has to be like the concept of it being factual instead of a broader concept of it being true is a very Western rationalist thing that, that is incredibly helpful for the world. I'm so grateful that we have that in our toolbox 
but it's incredibly harmful when that's the only tool by which we use a set of writings that were not written to be used in this tool at all, right? So factual is great when you're creating vaccines or like when you're doing math or do you know what I mean? There's like a whole, when you're building a house, thank God for these, when you're doing a philosophy paper, these are all your best friends, right? But when you're reading a story that came together in a community over time, as they're trying to figure out their their understanding of who God is, that just can't be the only tool you use. And it's incredibly limiting to, um, to what I think the intention of Scripture is, you know? If we want to be open to what the Spirit is doing, we can't tell the Spirit what it's going to say before we read it. Yeah. Yeah. But it goes back to that idea again of, like, <laughs> it's what you said. We have to enter into a world that is complicated and yes. and be willing to embrace the idea that scripture is not simple and scripture is not clear <laughs> no. i think those were maybe some of the most toxic ideas that i was ever handed about scripture is that it is simple and it is clear and you will <laughs> read it and you will understand it and then you will be able to interpret and live it and that's that was never the vision. No. And honestly, if somebody really who sees it all as it is could say that, they're like spiritually enlightened to the level that I will never get. <laughs> you know, like, oh, you think Jesus is being clear? Like, I, I don't, I just have a lot of questions about that, you know? <laughs> I'm still trying to figure out what he wants me to do, right? So I... um. It isn't, and it isn't on purpose because it's not plug and play. Wisdom is not plug and play. Knowledge is plug and play, but, you know, Scripture itself says that knowledge without wisdom is folly, and so we can know um, the facts of the story or, like, the here we can quote things, but if we don't have the wisdom to know what it is conveying, like, from liter literally to literarily, like, what is this conveying? Mm about who we are and who God is and what we're meant to do and who we're meant to be and um, even how we should consider our own sinfulness and change our ways. Like even that requires a sense of openness to a broader story, but it also requires trust because plug and play, you don't have to be a person who knows yourself or trusts yourself. And so it's really, see how it's all a package deal here with the original sin thing that you have an authority that tells you and you don't have the right to question it because you were a peon and a worm and you have, you know, all the things. I mean, I'm obviously straw manning that to the highest level of, you know, taking it well, to Well, but also, I but giggle then people because that. people actually say that. Yes. They do. Like, yeah. I was, mean, it, was it Charles Spurgeon that said, I am like, I am less than nothing. I'm like a pile of dung. Like he, he yes. said some really intense stuff about himself and we consider him to be like one of, like a great preacher, theologian leader of the modern age. It's just like, this guy was not healthy. <laughs> no, no. Like if you want to know what humility looks like, Richard Rohr is a much better example where He's very humble and he jokes. He's like, oh gosh, but if you knew that I'm just such a goofball sometimes, you know, he's very real, but he's also not going to say he's not a good teacher. Like he's, he's uh, grounded enough himself to know that he has made a difference. And so he therefore needs to be faithful 
to the influence that he does in fact hold instead of pretending like, you know, he's just a worm and blah, blah, blah. Like there's a way to be humble and to still hold the power that you have. Um, but anyway, yeah, for, I didn't want to get too far off of that, but for, for scripture, I think it does require a sense of trust, not only in ourselves to know how to read it and that if we read it wrong, like it gets worked out, you know what I mean? Um, by the community or by God or by time. Um, but also that the spirit is working in us as we read it to help us know. And we have to, I just think that sense of openness. Yeah. It requires trust. And a lack of control that yes. is terrifying yes. to us. Yes. In general and more specifically, theologically. I do want to get to one more aspect of sort of this like package deal because you use that phrase and I it's so so true because again I feel like I'm talking about myself a lot but when I sort of started unpacking this idea of original sin and the idea of original blessing and sort my explorations are around the self which I do want to get to um but I started saying like oh well when you let go of original sin almost every other theological belief that you stack on top of it is crumbling it's tumbling <laughs> like, down like the Jenga like, puzzle yes like my conception of sin my conception of redemption of the person of Jesus of the work of Jesus of the work of atonement like Baptism salvation itself yeah <laughs> like everything and I so I understand a little bit of why like people are very afraid of the idea of like letting go of original sin yeah and I get it because yes. you have to it's like you pull on that thread and the whole sweater comes apart and you're like crap I need a new sweater and so <laughs> I I understand the fear of letting go of that but mm-hmm. I guess I, I guess I just want to turn to, like, Jesus. So if we are operating in this idea that we don't have this original inherent sin nature, that we do sin, but we are made in the image of God, and we have this sort of ability to make choices, to build wisdom, to, like, live into our goodness, into our image of God, what then... And this, I think I'm getting, I think I might be quoting the book back to you because I think I'm getting to that elevator pitch moment. But like, what then is the point of Jesus? Right. Because I think if we, if we take away this building block of like, we are wretched, we are terrible, we need someone to come and save us from ourselves. What is the purpose of Jesus? The cross? <laughs> All of it. All of it. Right. Um. So one way I would respond to that is to say, I wonder if we could also ask the question of what we lose in the person and ministry and life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ when we only see him as debt payment and not as all the other things that he is to us mm-hmm. and how severely limiting that is in a way that so dishonors who Jesus is. Like, I just can't imagine 
that the fullness and breadth of who Jesus is wants to get squashed into this one singular point. You know? Um, It is not to be erased. Like, part of what Jesus does is sacrifice and um, death. And he trusts himself over to death to God, knowing that there will be something that comes out of it, right? Like all of those things are ways that Jesus does in fact show us a way forward. And it is just about so much more than sin management. So um, I think I say in the book, like, I think we're trying so hard. And again, we have to remember that this is not a concept that has always been there. Like Paul, as a good and faithful Jew, did not think of Jesus's death in this way. Um, I just don't think he thought of it in this way because also there wasn't a concept of original sin or the individual that like has a sin that has to be accounted for. First of all, it was all communal and collective. Um, right. So, okay. What was Paul talking about? Um, how can we recapture the fullness of what it is that God is up to in Jesus? And that requires us, I think, to see beyond this one way that we have come to set up the whole system. I love that phrase of how can we recapture the fullness of who Jesus was? Because you're right. I think it, I also, I also loved how much of a spiritual director response that was when you were like, (laughs) I wonder if, (laughs) what if it's like, it's so gentle and so open and so spacious. All these words that you have been using of just like, hmm, could it also be true that this is this is a thing? Um, but I think we do, we tend to minimize the person of Jesus. And I, I think I use the word the person of Jesus intentionally because... I think there is a reason that Jesus was a person and lived a life and had a ministry before he died. Yeah, for 30 years. Like, he had a life for 33 years. I just think it matters. I'm really sad we don't know more about it. Like, what was he doing when he was 12? That would be so interesting. I know the Gospel of Thomas says some things, you know, about him getting all up to into weird business in the carpentry shop or whatever. But um, yeah, he had a whole life. He had friends. He had siblings. He had parents. He probably played a sport. Do you know what I mean? Whatever. I don't know what the, I don't know what that would be. The soccer of the time, right? He was a whole person. Um, And then had three full years of ministry also before we killed him, which may or may not have been part of the plan. Um. He came here to show. <laughs> Say more about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, he was sent to show us who God is. I, I think it's an open question of whether he was sent to die. I think he was sent to show us who God is. And what happened is that we decided that was threatening and killed him. And God mm-hmm. brought good out of that because God is really good at working with what God has. <laughs> wow. um, I think it's an open question, right? Mm-hmm. I think it mm-hmm. I think it became fairly clear soon in his ministry that this was not going to end well, uh, which is why I think Jesus starts to foreshadow it. But um, 
Yeah, I think that's a fair thing to hold as an open question. Um, Jesus came to show us what God is like in person, in the mm-hmm. flesh. Jesus came to be God with us because we just always forget that God is with us. Mm-hmm. Um, all the way to death, right? But mm-hmm. we lose a lot if we if we don't honor all of the ways that Jesus shows us what that is. And I think we lose a lot of what it means to be human if we sort of boil him down (laughs) to a sacrificial lamb. Because I think one of my big, like, theological bugaboos is when people act like, well, that was Jesus. So, like, we (laughs) we can't do whatever it is that they're referring to because like oh well that was jesus he was god but like also he was human and so i do think that we're we're holding this incredibly rich tension in both hands when we say that like jesus came to show us who god is but also jesus came to show us how to be human yes Yes. And scripture and says we will mean? do greater works than he. Uh-huh. It says we <laughs> will do greater works than he. I mean, we just slide right over that as quick as possible. And know? that we may be one with God as he is one with God. Like that we may be one with each other as he yeah. is one with God. Like all these things are possible, scripture says, right? Yeah. 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 yeah and Part of being God with us is to say, let me show you what it means to walk in wisdom. Let me show you what it means. I mean, Jesus's temptation story is like, here's an inclination to evil and here's an inclination to good. And here's me showing you how you choose, how you choose rightly. Do you want power or fame or do you want to trust God? You know? Do you want to be showy or do you want to trust God? Like all these things are just the most common temptations we have to walk away from our own wisdom. And Jesus, in all the ways that he lived, shows us what it looks like to be in our humanity, in our goodness, fully rooted. And isn't that beautiful? And why on earth would we would we just make him a sacrificial animal? I feel like that the reference to Jesus' temptations is a pretty good segue to sort of this idea of um, and just him teaching us how to be human is a segue to this whole discussion of original sin, original blessing, and this idea of the self. I feel like this idea of original blessing is so key to understanding ourselves mm-hmm. because again if we are offered this idea that we are inherently fundamentally bad and that what Jesus does on the cross is to somehow sort of like replace who we are with a new self in Christ i feel like it's like invasion of the body snatchers And I don't understand why it would be a theological idea that 
anyone would want to say yes to, to say like, okay, well, in order to find God, I need to lose myself, admit that myself is inherently bad, and then sacrifice that self. But God made that self. (laughs) And God made that self in the image of God. So, I don't know. This is not a great question, and I am circling around a lot of ideas. But No, but I'm hearing you. (laughs) You're hearing me because you understand. You understand (laughs) what I'm saying. You probably know better what I'm asking than I am actually asking. Well, I I think to add insult to injury, it's not only invasion of the body snatchers, but it's a failed invasion of the body snatchers. Because even though you get saved, you don't lose your inclination to evil continually. And so you have to sacrifice and give up all these things and feel bad about them, and then nothing actually changes, right? This new self or whatever is, like, kind of located outside of you, and you just stay the same. That's the thing that actually just gets me the most is, like, wait a minute. What kind of a crap deal is this that, like, I'm supposed to do all these things and say I want something different? But then that's why I talk about in the book about that – evangelical tract about the chasm you know but it's like oh and jesus lays across the chasm you're here and god's Mm -hmm. here and you can't get to god and then jesus lays across and you walk across but i'm like okay but when you walk across you're still somebody who has fallen and inclined to evil continually you're just like standing next to god it doesn't fix any of the problems so it's failed invasion of the body snatchers so um yeah As it regards the self, there is no psychological wisdom that we have gained that does not corroborate original blessing. Mm -hmm. It's so great, actually, Mm -hmm. because anytime something new comes out, I'm like, yeah, I know. No, see, see, this is what I'm talking about. (laughs) Um, A couple of them, right? Fixed mindset versus growth mindset. Original sin is a fixed mindset. Original blessing is a growth mindset. Guess which one works? Every, every teacher who's had to go through a conference about growth mindset knows that you don't tell a kid you're bad at math. You say, this one test was hard for you in what you know about math right now, right? It's a very different way of saying it. Um, oh, okay, this one decision you made, you're a bad person. Or for what you were able to do in that moment, that was that was the capacity that you had. And there's more. You know, all the things on Instagram that you hear about, like, forgive your parents for, like, they, they did what they could with what they had. Like, we're all trying to come to terms with the fact that none of us were given perfect childhoods or whatever. Um, and that's what you see on Instagram about it. It's like you forgive them for that they did the best with what they could at the time because that's a growth mindset. That's actually how you forgive people too, right? Um, an idea of autonomy for kids. Like what you want in your kids is that at the beginning, they have to have a sense of authority. They, they don't eat the cookie because you told them not to eat the cookie. But you really hope that by the time they're like 12, that they have the internal reserves to choose by themselves not to eat the cookie. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to keep telling them that right? You want them to internalize the moral for themselves to make the choices within them own, their own selves. 
Well, that requires trusting yourself. That requires intuition. That requires getting close to your soul, right? In spiritual direction terms, this is what we do, right? We help people get in touch with that knowing, that inner knowing. And there's not a parent in the world that has read a parenting book that doesn't include these kinds of things, that you really want your kids to do the right thing when you're not standing there, because there will be a time when you're not standing there that they will have to make that decision for themselves, right? So I don't know if that is what, that is some of what you were thinking about when this idea of the self comes up, but so much of the psychology of how we grow as humans, how we become better humans is all rooted in the same kind of thing. And for me, spiritually, the way we add God into this is I just fully believe with all my heart and soul and mind that when we are rooted deeply in the love that God has for us, that is absolutely unshakable, unconditional, will not change no matter what, Mm -hmm. that we have a much bigger capacity to accept ourselves as we are. And that means that we accept our sin for what it is. And we can say we're sorry easier and we can try to do better, right? Like we take better responsibility and we take better um, thoughtful care for the good stuff. Like everything gets accounted for when we're rooted well in that. Yeah. I I think this idea of original goodness original blessing it's all the same yeah it's all the same um it gives us a way to honor and value ourselves and the people that we were created and intended to be as sort of this unique emanation of the image of god and it gives us i think some place safe to come home to when we do realize that we have sinned, that we have done these things yeah. that we don't want to do, when we have to sort of come face to face with that undeniable reality of like our own sin, our own brokenness. But it gives us a place to return to that is not shame. Yes. Because I think, I think this idea of total depravity, you're right. It, it doesn't give us a way to move forward. It doesn't give us a way to acknowledge. It just gives us this like dark secret place to hide our shame and sort of like tuck it away and say, yep, there it is. That's that's what's at my core. When in fact, I think the truest thing about us was the truest thing about Jesus mm-hmm. and that he was and we are the beloved of God and that again we are meant to be <laughs> we are meant to be in god's eyes as jesus was in god's eyes yeah and i think that's but you can't get to that place of sort of belovedness and a place to come home to if you don't believe that something at that core is good and beautiful and intended yes yes um We are unique expressions of God's image, and they are unrepeatable. There will never be another Esther, right? Um, And if we are to honor that in the way that I imagine God deeply hopes that we will, we have to 
learn to trust ourselves. Mm-hmm. We have to be rooted in that source of belovedness so that we can have the courage and the strength and the will to become what it is we are meant to become, who it is that we are meant to become. No way to do that in a shame spiral. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I love, I love what you said earlier about this because I, I love to use this phrase of we aren't changing, we are becoming like we aren't changing into someone else. We are becoming ourselves. Yeah. And I love the image that you were using of like being a parent. I'm not a parent, but it resonates so quickly of like, oh yeah, they want you to get to a point where like, it's like the after school special, but like when they're not at the party and somebody offers you a drink and yes, like, they want you to say no. And it goes back to that idea of like, the garden narrative as this like coming of age story where we leave the garden we go to the party and and god wants nothing more than for us to be able to say like oh actually taking that drink is not what is right for me it is not what is wise it is not what is best for who i deeply that's not who i am yes yeah yeah you have to have a sense of self and guess what teenagers don't yet have a sense of self which is why sometimes they go to parties and you know somebody offers them that fruit and they're like yeah (laughs) and then you say oh this is such a great growing opportunity right like um even if you don't have kids you were a kid you had a thing that you were like oh I thought that was like I was just trying on some stuff because I didn't have a sense of self yet well I mean (laughs) yeah you're 15 you're 16 you're 20, right? It takes time to grow into a sense of self and it's not a big deal. God actually designed it that way. And instead of shaming ourselves for the fact that we might go and make the wrong decision because we don't yet have a sense of self, we can instead see that as an opportunity to be like, oh, you know, I went to that party. I had that thing. It just didn't feel right with me, you know, Mm -hmm. because that's not who I am. And now I know what that feels like. And so the next time, I can make a decision that's more closely aligned with who I am in my soul. Mm-hmm. And that that happens a lot of times after we make a mistake that we find that distinction. We're like, mm-hmm. oh, I didn't know that was a line I couldn't cross. You cross it and you think, oh, that's not for me. I did not like the way that I talked to that person. I did not like the way that whatever, fill in the blank. Mm-hmm. And that gives you the sense of knowing so that you can make a decision closer to self next time. It's all just part of the process. It truly is. I know you started out all of this by saying this, but it truly is a very like open and spacious way of viewing who we are and how we exist in the world. And I know that, I mean, I know there are extreme examples and, we aren't really talking about the intense, like, I feel like everyone's mind just goes to, like, the most intense example when you talk about, like, sin or evil or original goodness or all of these things, like, people love to pull out the... The Hitler card? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking the serial killer card. Oh, but but yeah. yeah. (laughs) I mean, like, because I, 
I'm so inclined to view the world in a similar way of like, I ultimately think that most of these things that we put on in our full self are just ways that we are trying to have our fundamental needs of love and safety and security met. And yes, sometimes they get so covered over as to be unrecognizable as a good and beautiful and human need that does deserve to be met. But I think I think that's the source of our sin behaviors. I'm using quotation marks on a audio podcast, but <laughs> I, I think and it I think sin is something that needs to be healed and loved and cared for so much more than it is something that needs to be shamed and cut out. Yeah. Well, and again, all the psychology research sure bears that out, right? Like they've figured this out and why, where is the church? <laughs> um, but they're like, you know what doesn't fix it is if you shame somebody. What they need is you need, you know, somebody who, and certainly do we need like justice and, you know, that you are guilty in a court of law? Yeah. Yes. Sometimes we need that too because you have to hold people accountable so that you you are inviting them into their better selves sometimes, right? When you set a limit and a boundary. And that's sometimes good too. Um, and if if all of that is not done in the sense of repair, we are missing it because it will not do what we want it to do. I mean, all these conversations, not to get into all that, but all these conversations about restorative justice, that's what all those are about. It's like, Justice is not justice unless it is somehow restorative, meaning that we think about the wholeness of the person, not only who was victimized, but who was the oppressor. And we think about what it means to bring both of them into a more full place, a place of healing. Um, And our systems are designed to shame and to punish. And our religious systems are certainly designed to shame and punish. And it doesn't do anything to actually fix the world's problems because what fixes the world's problems is an abiding sense of comfort and trust in God's love. Um, that is not an excuse to let people sin badly. That is a, a way heavy invitation to understand how responsible we are for our own goodness and for safeguarding the goodness that others know in themselves. It is a huge task. <laughs> it's way easier to punish somebody than to say, what would it mean for this person who's done this terrible thing to ground into themselves and find their way back to that goodness and what would it mean for us to be a society that does that yeah I think this is all just bringing me back around again to this like I think you said it in reference to leaving the garden but like we have to enter into a world that is complicated yes and I I think well, this is a connected question because I'm curious about sort of how we came to the idea of original sin because you've said a couple of times that it, is, it isn't the most ancient or original idea. Like yeah. it's something that we came up with more recently, but I feel like it has, if I had to make a guess, it would have something to do with this idea of like craving sort of a black and white simplicity mm-hmm. and control over what is right and what is wrong and who it is in and who is 
out of our religion theology. Um, So yeah, how did this come to be? Yeah. Well, I mean, you could write a whole book just on that. But um, (laughs) what I can say briefly is, um, obviously, we know that Augustine introduced this. Well, I don't know. Not everybody knows this. Augustine introduced the idea of like the individual that we then built our Western individualism around Um, for better and worse, right? Like um, for better and worse, that, that is a thing that happened, but part of his particular soul is that he was an incredibly anxious and fearful person who had a lot of guilt and just woo, bless it, bless him. Like what that, I wouldn't have wanted to have that life. Um, and I think when you think about it at its root, like, you know, there's that old adage of like, what is, what is at the creation of the thing is, ends up being in the DNA. Right. And I think what's at the root of the DNA of original sin is a sense of guilt and fear. And I think that was in some ways, I'm not entirely putting the entire doctrine of original sin at Augustine's feet, um, but a good chunk of it at it um, and Calvin's and right. right? Like there's a whole lot of ways that this got iterated. Um, There are places that stem from guilt and fear. And you just, let's just go ahead and say, it's probably wise not to create a doctrine that is related to God out of guilt and fear at the root. Maybe we wait, maybe we take a nap and have a sandwich and a cupcake (laughs) and we try again tomorrow and we get something that's more life giving and fruitful. Right. Um, You're so right. You're so right. It's just like my daily existential crisis where everyone says, everyone who knows me well says you need to go outside, you need to take a nap and you need to eat a snack. Yes. And then we'll come back and we won't put our own fears and anxieties and project them directly back onto a God who does not know those things. Yeah. No. Yeah. We shouldn't um, put things in writing when we're hangry or PMSing or if our boyfriend just broke up with us or if our dog just died. Like, these are basic things, right? This is not the day for decisions. (laughs) This is a day for a Netflix and a nap and a cupcake, and maybe we walk the dogs and smell some flowers when we come back, right? Guilt and fear are not going to get us what we want. Um, that's a, that's an individual way of saying it. Of course, there's other things which were very convenient, which is that if, you, if people feel guilty, they pay tithes. And, um, you know, all of that escalated to a point at which a reformation was required, right? Um, not to get into nerdy church history, but like, how how that turned out is that finally people were like, this has gotten out of hand, right? Um, but people, hey, if you can pay your way out of a problem, that's also such an easy button. So if, I, if you make me feel guilty and then you tell me if I pay, I don't feel guilty, who's not going to say yes to that? Um, here, take it. Uh, that's avoiding the work. And at some point, we all pay the price in a way bigger way than the tithing and the whatever. Um, We all pay the price for when we don't show up and do our work. 
I just, I love everything about this conversation and I could talk to you forever and ever. Amen. But um, I am just curious, how has doing this work theologically, how has this changed you? Like, how has it changed the way that you move through the world? Yeah. Thank you for that question, actually. Um. You know, there were times when I was writing this book, and again, I told you, I have been thinking about this probably my whole life, you know, there's, um, it's important to me. It matters a lot. It's one of the things that I will um, stand on the soapbox of for the rest of my life. I will always be talking about this. Mm-hmm. Um, and it has to go deeper than that, doesn't it? It has to be something that's lived. And there were times when I was writing this book that I really was praying and struggling with I don't know if I've figured out yet how to live fully into this, you know, cause it's just always a work in progress. It will mm-hmm. always be a work in progress. And now as I look back um, and think about the ways that I think it has slowly integrated and it, I hope it will continue. I hope I look back in five more years or 10 more years and think, Oh gosh, yeah, I feel it even more now. Um, I feel very at ease with God and with others, and I feel that my capacity to be present to whatever comes has grown. Mm. If something bad happens, I'm not happy about it. I don't love it, but I just see it with a broader sense of trust and perspective. Um, I hope that I don't lose myself in the process of something hard as much as I used to when I was much younger and less rooted in this. Mm. Um, yeah, I sleep knowing I'm loved and I wake up knowing I'm loved. And I think that continues to deepen in a way that I hope other people feel. And I hope other people catch because I only got here because I was around people who did that farther along the road than I did. And so we're Mm. all just walking each other home. You know, mm-hmm. so. it just makes me think of Paul's prayer for the Ephesians that they would be rooted and established in love. Yes, that's exactly and, it. And that is that is when the things that are greater than what we could imagine that is when they come is when we are rooted and established in love and know how long and wide and high and deep is love. Yes, I mean I think. We complicated a lot, but that's you did, it. You just move differently in the yeah. world when that's when that's your place to come home to. Yeah, yeah. And I think I've been able to shed some pieces of the false self that will always be popping around in the system, um, because the closer you get to that soul sense of worth, you're like, oh, that's not who I am. I don't need to hold on to that. I thought that was like so important for me to have and it's actually not and you just let it fall out of your hands and you become more whole every time that happens so yeah that's part of it too I think yeah you just don't need it anymore you just don't need it anymore it's not even a big deal mm-hmm. yeah wasn't that amazing isn't she the coolest person Mm-hmm. To ever walk the face of the earth. My favorite part was when you say, I'm obsessed with you. 
did I really say in the interview? <laughs> it's amazing. Um, I had to hold back I, so much. You did so good, Esther. All I wanted to say was like, "Do you love me? Do you want to be my and best friend now?" She does. Are you impressed with me? Like, wow, all of my people-pleasing tendencies came out so much. I mean, you crushed it. Knocked it out of the park. 10 out of 10. Thank you so much. She's a pretty fantastic human. I mean, I listened to her on another mm-hmm. podcast where she talked more about her um, black belt and being a ninja. So it's pretty fantastic. She's so cool. Maybe we can have her back someday to talk about being a ninja. I was going to ask that. That could be our take two with Danielle. Be like, take come, two. Come talk to us about black belting and ninjing. <laughs> okay, Esther. <laughs> um, anyway, I'm going to stop talking for a moment and let you guys talk. Um, what were some of your takeaways from the interview? Melissa, let's start with you. Oh, man. So, number one, I love the title of her book original blessing um because i absolutely hate how much theology in pretty much all the churches i've been a part of are based on original sin um and so we base so much on the fall rather than on sort of that the creation story where everything god blessed and said it was good um and also just that idea that God's actually not always disappointed and angry with us, you know? Um, and <clears throat> it's just huge when I think about it. Um, another resource that um, is very much along Danielle's work, like along the same vein, um, is one I use with uh, my job with working with kids is called Good Inside um, by Dr. Becky. And it's that same idea, like, where um, instead of seeing kids as doing things because they're they're bad, um, it's saying they have needs that need to be met and they'll do about anything to get them met. Um, and that shows up in weird behaviors. But that's like with us, like, we're trying, everything we do is so based on trying to reconnect um, to ourselves, to God, to others. Um, And it comes out sideways a lot of times, but the intent is that we're good um, and that our desires are good. And that's just like listening to Danielle talk about those things. I was just like, oh, thank you. Thank you for putting this out into the world in a world where it's constantly about our uh depravity and our grossness so that's that was just my enjoying this conversation and hearing her talk about these things I think for me wow so much to unpack I literally have like so many I'm like I feel like a little bit of a puppy of like which way which way do we go there's so many ways there's so many things I could say but I think I mean on my theological journey I feel like you can't wrestle with everything all at once, you know, because I mean, at least not for me, I've kind of had to like take different theological things of my faith, like kind of like one at a time or kind of a few at a time. And to be honest with you, not in a, like, this is one that I am be kind of beginning the journey to think about just because Esther, I feel like you 
were one of the first ones to kind of like talk to me about almost like a new way of looking at, at kind of sin and blessing. And it's a lot of me kind of open-handed, just like learning. And that's why I loved this conversation because I feel like it even helped tie some things together that you and I have talked about. And I kind of feel like you're Esther, you've been my teacher a little bit in this where I'm like, Oh, say more. (laughs) Oh, say more. And so hearing Danielle, um, was just kind of another, like another teacher in this area that I'm excited to like learn more about because yeah, like my whole life growing up, um, it was a certain narrative and this is a different, this is like a totally different spin on the narrative that I kind of grew up with, um, in church. So that's just like real life Beth talking about her process, but something that I loved that she talked about, um, in the interview was, her curiosity, like how she grew up in a certain way and sought out voices even outside of her community to learn. That was like really powerful to me and just kind of a lesson for all of us is like, um, not to just stay siloed in our own community, but really to go out and learn from other communities. Not that like, we're always going to take it as our theological truth, but it's just such a good practice of learning and having a posture of curiosity, whether you not change your mind, but you guys know what I mean. It's like just a good practice. Let's all do it. Good job, Danielle. We love you. (laughs) I love everything you just said, Beth, because it like segues and piggybacks like straight into everything I was going to say. So like we planned it so in (laughs) sync with each other. Um, Cause yeah, my takeaway from this conversation is really to just like encourage everyone to sit with this because like Beth was saying, I can almost guarantee that for a lot of people listening to this interview and this conversation, some of what you're going to be hearing or some of what you heard is going to be a little bit unfamiliar and it might feel a little bit unsettling to start to think about things in a different sort of way. But I really firmly believe that the journey towards spiritual growth and awakening almost always begins with that feeling of being a little bit unsettled. And so I feel like the invitation from this conversation is just to sit with that and decide what is valuable to you and what you think because our goal in these conversations in this podcast is never to like change someone's mind about anything (laughs) I think we're just here to offer invitations and ideas and new ways of thinking and new questions to consider so as Danielle said like this is just another option another thing that might be true and that might be helpful so that's the invitation. Um, I can personally say that thinking about all of this and learning how to see myself and my own belovedness, and like she was talking about at the end, coming home to my own belovedness has changed the way I move through the world. And so I do hope that it begins to shift some things for everyone who listened to this interview. Um, but yeah. Thanks so much for being here, for listening. We'll link to Danielle's book and her website and socials in the show notes. 
So if you want to keep digging in and keep exploring, you can. But thanks so much for being here. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much for listening. Do you have or know of a story that needs to be heard? Keep the conversation going by following us on Facebook or Instagram and sharing this conversation with someone else who needs to be a part of it. Or if you're like Beth and social media isn't your thing, you can visit our website, peoplewhosee.com. Be sure to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And if you loved an episode, rate, review, and share. Your support ensures that more stories are being heard and more questions are being asked.